This week on the Narcissist Apocalypse Pop Culture Inquiry, we dissect the 2009 film cult classic, Jennifer's Body. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Movie Breakdown bonus episode. With me, I have Emily Charles Donaldson. Is it good enough? Did I get it? It's Donaldson, but everybody says Donaldson. Oh, I never noticed that. Or is it D? No, there's no D. Oh, I was going to do... Uh, like the Django Unchained line there. The D is silent, but there is no D. There is no D. <laughs> All right, everyone. Today we're going to discuss, we're going to discuss the movie. Jennifer's Body, written by Diablo Cody and directed by Karen Kusama. I'm sure I got that wrong as well. Did I get I that right? I think you got that right. Oh, I got So this is our first time doing this, everyone. So bear with us. We're going with a really complicated movie right off their bat, off the bat here. So many things are going on in this movie. This movie came out in the 2009 uh, era. It's era year of 2000. This movie flopped when it came out, but it's gotten life again. It's come back as a cult classic, cult classic, classic, everyone especially in the LGBTQ plus community and the feminist communities. But before we get into that, and Emily has a lot to say about this as, as well, and she's shaking her head at me and she's getting upset, but she does. Uh, this episode would not be able to be done if it was not for her, and you'll hear why. But on the base level, everyone, I'm going to read out the actual description of this movie, which is not the description from the actual filmmakers themselves, but I found this one online. So here it goes, everyone. This story takes place in a town near Minnesota in the United States where Needy and Jennifer go to high school. The two are childhood friends, despite their differences in their positions within the high school hierarchy. Jennifer forms part of the upper echelon as a cheerleader, while Needy is resigned to her role as a band nerd. One day, Jennifer is sacrificed in a satanic ritual by a band called Low Shoulder, who believe they will get fame in exchange for the death of a virgin. However, Jennifer lied to them about her virginity, so she survives the ritual and turns into a powerful demon, oh so powerful, that needs to feed on human flesh to survive. After several of Needy's schoolmates go missing, she finds Jennifer covered in blood in her kitchen. Needy begins to suspect Jennifer of being behind the murders, and finally, Needy kills her after Jennifer kills Chip, who is Needy's boyfriend, and Needy is then sent to a mental asylum. There, she discovers that she has inherited, yes, everyone, she's inherited some of Jennifer's powers from her bite during the fight 
and then escapes the institution to murder the band members who destroyed Jennifer's life and to avenge Jennifer's death, which she kind of technically caused in the first place. But that is the surface level description of this movie. And that's exactly how it was written, too. And we say surface level because there's numerous, numerous different things going on. Sometimes there's one level in a movie. Sometimes there's two. Sometimes there's... We're going on the three plus here. I would say, would you agree to that? Would you concur there, Donaldson? Yep. A three, three layer onion. Ogres are like an onion. Yeah. We have layers. So after saying all that, which was a load, this movie, when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community and the feminist community, uh, have different theories, all of which are true. So we're going to look at things from those perspectives, but we're also going to be looking at things, the course of control perspective, narcissistic perspective, abuse perspective. And we'll just describe course of control for you first, or we'll just give you the definition of course of control. So when we go through these things, you can understand a little bit more what we're talking about. So coercive control is a persistent pattern of controlling coercive and threatening behavior, including all or some forms of domestic abuse, emotional, physical, financial, sexual, including threats by a boyfriend, partner, husband, or ex. It traps women in a relationship and makes it impossible or dangerous to leave. And today we'll be addressing a little bit of that, but also from the, I guess, feminist perspective or the ideology or not ideology, but from the theories that were created, we're also going to discuss how uh, one thing that's not mentioned here is that there's a societal level of coercive control that's going on that this movie is uh, addressing as well. How would you feel about that there, Donaldson? Yeah, that makes sense. So, the first layer here of this onion is relationship between Jennifer and Needy. And Needy's real name is Anita Lesnicki. So right off the bat there on layer one, they're being pretty obvious that, well, she's a needy person. She might be codependent of some, and that she is also gay. And that comes into play in the feminist theory, not feminist, in the LGBTQ theory uh, of, this sh- of this movie and these characters. But right off the bat, these two have a dynamic on the surface level of their dynamic where Jennifer is the mean girl of the group. And then you have uh, Needy, who is. Um, how do you put it? The girl with the glasses? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the smart girl. The smart girl. And that they've been best friends their whole entire lives. And one treats the other uh, disrespectfully. She is rude to her. I'll go, I'll run down my list here of things I have. Cause I'm the surface level guys. I'm a surface level person. And so things that are kind of going on here. Jennifer is aggressive. She's vain. She thinks she's great, better than others. She gaslights uh, Needy. She has no empathy for Needy in, in a lot of places in this movie. 
Uh, she becomes physically abusive. She puts her down. She puts down her looks and even says at a certain point that uh, she is a god. Um, I need you frightened. I want you hopeless. And we can go back on that meaning because it might have a different meaning later on. So th- that's kind of what's going on there, like how she treats needy. Needy always looks up. And when we discuss narcissistic abuse, when we discuss abuse, needy has her on a pedestal. Uh, throughout this whole uh, movie, she doesn't see the faults in a lot of ways of what is going on with her. Eventually she will, but she has her on such a pedestal that she overlooks all of those things. And that's kind of their relationship. That's a power imbalance that is going on. And that's the surface level kind of stuff when we when we're comparing this right now to abuse between these two characters before we get to the subtext of everything that is going on that everyone can um uh, just about what's happening. So that's kind of that. Do you have anything to add to what I just said? Yeah, I would just say that the film sets it up like, you know, that it's been going on since they were children, right? Like in the first, I think it's the first sandbox scene. Like the the very opening of the film, first of all, she says sandbox, love never dies. So it's like setting it up so that it's like the relationship between these two characters is the where the film is going to revolve around. And then there's a scene of them as a flashback, like when Jennifer comes in and starts gaslighting Needy about what had happened the night before, like Jen- like Needy's like, oh, like you're okay. Like what happened? And Jennifer's like, yeah, of course I'm okay. Like you overblow everything. And she's trying to like downplay it. And then she's like devaluing her. There's this flashback to them in the sandbox and uh, Needy is like, why do I always have to be ugly Betty or something? It's like the, the ugly doll and you get to be like the princess, beautiful one. So it's like already putting it so that like setting it up in such a way that they they've been like this throughout their entire lives. Like there's that power imbalance has been there the entire time. So that, that, that is like level basic level one and a way most people would interpret this movie without looking deeper into the, into the meaning of anything. But this movie's taken on a completely different life over time because people started to see what the people who created this movie were really going after. And you were talking to me earlier about Diablo Cody, who was uh, the writer of the movie uh, Juno, where she became famous for writing that movie. And we discussed how within the process of her writing that movie and the story as far as the marketing of that, that the movie was marketed in a big way as this person who was a, an exotic dancer who became a screenwriter and she wrote this great movie. And that wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just about seeing the movie Juno. It was the sexualization of this person and this maybe deviant kind of, and I did that in air quotes, everyone. Um, you know, way that she might have been living because, you know, Puritan or, or who knows whatever, like there's controversy around this because of what her job is, which is crazy to think about, but that's how it was marketed. And in my mind, that's kind of what they're going for to be edgy, um, to get people to come and see this movie and they're exploring 
someone's sexuality and sex work and all these things to get you to see this. And we were discussing how, you know, for Diablo Cody, I guess you take away like what her thought process was from your research. Yeah. In an interview with uh, Megan Fox, um, Cody talks about the fact that she had kind of created um, like an alter ego for herself. So her real name is Brooke. And then she created this um, alter ego called Diablo Cody, which then like she would act differently. Like she changed her the way that she behaved, the the way that she interacted with people. And she found that she became more popular. Like people liked her more. She got more attention. Her stories were listened to. Um, and she was able to like excel in her career. So she talks about the addiction to this alter ego. So when she wrote um, Jennifer's body, it was like Brooke was needy and Diablo is Jennifer. So the, the, t- the character is a split. And I noticed that like when I first watched it, like from the very first scene of them, when Jennifer's the cheerleader and waving at needy in the audience and like needy has the glasses on and Jennifer's like the hot girl. Like you can see there's like the, ca- the character is actually kind of one character, but it's split into two. So I feel like that sets it up in a really interesting direction. So here's Layer 2, and Layer 2 technically might not fully be part of the movie, but the story of the actual person who wrote this movie becomes a layer of this because of who she has to be to succeed possibly in this business and in that environment and in the world, she is conforming in part to survive to live, to put food on the table, to work. And now she's creating a movie where she gets to discuss the parts of her that were corrupted by the society, which in this case would be the abuser or the coercive controller to conform to live in that in and then the person that she really is and you know when you bring this about talking about relationships of losing yourself within these relationships and having to conform to survive and you know course of control doesn't in the description that we gave doesn't bring in society as a whole but that really does have to be discussed um we wouldn't have course of control if society didn't let this happen to and I hope we're not getting too crazy here about the different types of layers, but this is a really complicated movie when you break those things down. It's not as simple as it's being shown, and it's why it's now getting its re- in later years, especially for being a, a possession demon movie. Yeah, and then like you look at Megan Fox, who is also going through a similar thing to Cody at the same time. So Megan was being pigeonholed into these roles where she had to be objectified and sexualized. And that's, you know, that's all people saw. And they weren't taking her seriously as an actor. And she, in the, in the same interview, like that's what Megan says in response to um, Diablo talking about this issue of like an addiction to an alter ego. Like Megan also took on this role 
that the movie industry was trying to pigeonhole her into and ran with it because she was like, okay, well, if that's what I am, then I'm going to make the most of it. I'm just going to go for it. And then, you know, it, it, it resulted in the same kind of thing. Like she was addicted to this role, but it wasn't good for her. Like it, it ended up, you know, like she spiraled because of it. Well, well, and then eventually she spoke out about um, her role in Transformers in you know the context of like who she was as the character, and, um, kind of spoke out against Transformers as a whole, and that is a huge movie, a huge industry movie, and for a very long time after saying that, she was removed from the movie and pretty much black. Yeah, so that's. That's what she was saying in this interview, actually. She was, like, talking about how, you know, doing Jennifer's body as a as a role was cathartic because the way that she was being treated by the studios was being reflected in her role as Jennifer. So these, she talks about how these studios were, like, bleeding her dry. Like, it didn't matter what kind of abuse she was going through, and she would, like, raise her concerns, and they would all just ignore her as long as they were getting from her what they wanted. So she said when she filmed the scene where, you know, the low shoulder lead singer is uh, slashing her up. That was like a really intense scene for her to do because she was channeling all of that. Like those screams that she's screaming in that scene were her channeling her frustration over feeling like she was being basically like raped by this industry and like unable to break out of this mold, which is basically Megan Fox's body in, in her work life. So layer, layer two, everyone, is when uh, anyone who was working on that movie, everything crossed at the exact same time. My, my vocabulary is just not great today to come up with the proper. I guess it's just like what they were going through, like the, the coercive control mechanisms that they were running into in society were then being reflected by the film's narrative. Um, I think that's how. Yeah. Yeah, it was coinciding with it the exact same time, especially specifically at that moment of their life. Yeah, specifically at that moment. And I don't know if this is like the right place to bring up the way that the film was marketed and the film's reception. But I feel like that's also another, maybe that's another layer. (laughs) I don't know. This is like on the societal level, the, you know, the film was not well received. And that like part of that is because you know, the film was trying to give a voice to something that society didn't want to look at at that moment in time. Like you look at the way the studio took it. So they they basically just said, you know, because Megan Fox is in it. So this is, again, it's like pigeonholing Megan Fox into a specific role in a box. Like because she's in it, we have to market it to, you know, young men who want to ogle Megan Fox. Like, this is the primary reason for this movie to exist. And Cody sent an email to a marketing executive and was like, you know, long, articulate email about who the target market was, which was teenage girls, and how it should be marketed. And uh, the, the marketing executive sent back three words, which was Megan Fox hot. Like, that was it. It was like there was no, there was no way to make them see how this film could be, you know, 
received in any other capacity beyond Megan Fox being objectified by a bunch of boys. And and then the the fact that, you know, the film flopped, even, you know, even if the film is not marketed to you, like what, you can only watch movies if there's boobs in them? Like, is that really, like, is that not a form of narcissism? If you're like, I'm not going to see this movie because it's about a woman's experience. I can't empathize with a woman's experience. Some people cannot, and we call them what? Narcissists. There you go. So I guess once we get through that layer, layer two of the people that are in the movie or involved with the movie that are going through it, when it comes to the town, the town would represent society, and the town is, you know, devil's and we have a kettle in front of us, and I guess to not totally take from Stranger Things with the upside down, that there is this thing that goes on in the movie where Jennifer is ritually killed, and a knife is thrown away, and it goes down this dimensional hole. Is that the best way to put it? Going to hell? Yeah, they. I mean, the beginning of the film, Needy describes this waterfall because the town is named after this waterfall that goes into a vortex of water. The scientists don't know where it ends up, so it could be a different dimension. There is a way out, but none of the characters know where that way out is. It's like blocked off. Like there's no actual, it's like it's in a bubble and no one... In the same way like Truman. Yeah. And like you get references from, I think mostly from Jennifer throughout the film where she's, there's like references to wanting to leave. Like, you know, the band comes in from the city and she's kind of in awe of them because they're from the city. Like she makes references to their haircuts and their clothes. And it's, it's like they, characters would like to be able to leave this constricting place, but they can't because they don't know where, (laughs) where this vortex leads or whatever. So this town, getting everything kind of back to the town, because it's, this is a very complicated movie. And this town really was kind of representing, um, how control is always there. Uh, everyone is running off of the same belief systems about who everyone is, how everything should work, and how women in society specifically are used and abused and objectified. And anything on our list there, of course, of control, a lot of those things are involved in how women are treated, including uh, women who are eventually have negative self-talk about themselves of who they are objectifying their own body. Uh, and the list can go on and, and on with that. But we'll eventually get to the big line about that toward the end. So, you know, this movie kind of gets started where there is this fire that happens at this bar and they go outside after the fire. Not everyone lives. This band is there. They're looking for a virgin to sacrifice. And uh, Jennifer, who is not a great person, is in this daze. She is traumatized. And you have this traumatized individual 
who's not able to make decisions, proper decisions. Her friend doesn't want her to go into this van, but the people in the van, the band takes her and she's not able to make decisions. She's young. These band is an older group of men or at least 25 or something like that. Adrian Brody has been playing a teenager his whole life, so who knows how old he's supposed to be in the And this traumatized person comes in there. She thinks she's going to be, or at least you think she's going to be sexually assaulted at the beginning of the movie. And that is what is in theory going on. She's being assaulted in every way, but the movie has it that she is sacrificed. And within that sacrifice, it it goes well for the group because they get what they want. But since she was not a virgin, which was part of what the sacrifice was, a demon possesses her because she was not a virgin. And now she becomes empowered after that experience. And I guess, is she empowered after? And, And a lot of people will see her as being meaner after this happens. But in a way, she's empowered after it's part revenge. But is there also trauma going on in the response that's going on? Because then her response affects uh, affects the rest of the movie. And it's the character Needy the most, who is essentially the main character uh, of this movie. So I guess discuss that whole part. I think that's the best place to start. I think so. Um like this is where you can start getting into like the genre of horror and the way the film is playing with the genre because um like the town could it it's like it could be a metaphor for society but it's also and like how you know society can be constrictive with stereotypes in real life but then also genres and the way we make films have these archetypes that you know characters are kind of confined within. So if you look at the horror genre, and this one is specifically a revenge story, Jennifer is like the promiscuous one, right? As an archetype. And Needy would be the final girl. But neither of them fit comfortably within those roles. Like the promiscuous one in horror films are supposed to die. Like you're not allowed to have promiscuous sex in horror films. You get punished. But Jennifer, she survives. So it's actually because she wasn't a virgin that she survived this thing. And then the revenge storyline in a in a revenge film, like a, a good example of a clean cut revenge film would be I Spit on Your Grave, um, which is like it spends the first half of the film where this woman is being, you know, like violently stalked and raped. And then the second half is her taking revenge on her attackers. Um, and actually a similar thing happened to that movie where it was put out, um, under the title day of the day of the woman. And then it went nowhere. It flopped with the marketing and then they called it spit on your grave and remarketed it. And then people went to see it. So it was like female empowerment title didn't work kind of just like Jennifer's body. But, um, in this revenge story, um, there is no specific assailant that Jennifer is going after. She's just going after boys, (laughs) And boys in general are referred to as morsels throughout the entire film. So it's like the film is flipping the way the characters are used in the horror genre. Like the the men in the film are the ones that are 
looked at as objects to be consumed. And they're the ones that have to be afraid to be in dark, you know, spaces at night alone because the, the woman is the attacker. So it's, it's playing with that. Um, and specifically with, with Jennifer's role as the promiscuous one, because she's not being punished for being the sexual. It makes sense. And it's also, you have someone here who's been through trauma and when it comes to her relationship with needy in in this case, we start to see her trying to, in a lot of ways, you're seeing it on the surface level of what we talked before, as this is an abusive relationship between them, or it's a toxic relationship where it's an unevenness. But if you take it from now the point of view of she's now being empowered after this experience, you have someone who is trying to now empower possibly. Um, her friend who she sees as living within this system and society that has painted her in a specific way where she's living this quote-unquote normal way you're still also supposed to be because they're both living in normal ways that they're supposed No one values Jennifer for how she feels on the inside throughout the film. Like, she's always an object. Um, and she makes reference to that constantly. Like she's like, I feel so empty. Um, and even like she starts to view herself as a sexual object, which is where we get into that final line in the film. Um, but like that's that's how we view women in general. So it's like. And needy is valued not on how she looks, but because she's not supposed to be good looking, she's valued for her personality or her like being smart it's like you're being put into these boxes and that's where you get into some of the toxicity in their relationship like early on in the film when jennifer is begging needy to go out with her rather than spending the evening with her boyfriend chip um she tells needy to wear something cute and then you get the commentary over top from needy saying when Jennifer says wear something cute, it means wear something nice, but not too nice. Like don't upstage me, you know, like tits are Jennifer's thing. I'm not allowed to wear something that's revealing of my tits or whatever. Uh, so it's like that there's already this weird tension between girls not being able to be both things. Like you're not allowed to be hot and smart. You have to be one or the other. It's, it's separated into two characters. And that's the same thing of, of what was going on in that other layer that we were talking about with Cody and Fox themselves being pigeonholed and not allowed to go outside of those boxes. And then you saying those words right there, when we listen to our survivor story episodes and we hear um, family episodes, specifically mother daughter episodes, one of the characteristics of a specific type of uh, narcissistic or abusive mom is you can be great. And what you do, but you just can't upstage me. And I'll take accolades for when you do do great and whatever you do, but you can never be better than me. That's my job. Then you get knocked down a peg. Yeah. And that's, that's what Jennifer is doing to needy all throughout the film. Like that, that toxic relationship or abusive relationship really between them is there. Like Jennifer is definitely threatened by needy. Hence, like every time 
Needy shows any interest in a boy, whether it's as a friend or the guy she's dating, Jennifer then turns her sights on that guy. And, you know, like Colin, the emo kid, gets eaten after Needy is like, oh, I take drama class or whatever with him and he's a great writer. And then, you know, she goes for her boyfriend, Chip. And then Needy's like, why'd you have to eat my boyfriend? And it's like, because you liked him and now Jennifer's jealous. I liked Colin, the emo kid. I think he was my favorite of the guys in the movie. The interesting thing about all these characters, too, is that they all they all are boxed into these stereotypes. So it's like Colin, the emo kid. Chip is like the good boyfriend. I don't know. You could probably do it for all of them. Then there's the jock, Jonas, the jock. Um, and Needy seems to be the one because she's the smart one. She sees outside of the stereotypes. So it's like Jennifer's just dismissing Colin as the emo kid, whereas Needy's like, no, actually, he's a really cool guy. Like, he he writes really well. She's always the one that's seeing through the myths and the narratives that are being constructed as reality in the film, but they're not actually reality. They're just fictions. Needy's the one who sees th- through them. So even when the band who, you know, they sacrificed... Jennifer to Satan so that they could get popular and then they get really popular but not because they sacrificed Jennifer to Satan it's because the thing that bar burned down and it got all, all, all over the news and then they were like we're the heroes of Devil's Kettle we helped save all these people and now we've written this beautiful song about it and now we're donating the proceeds from the song like they just made up this whole narrative and it made them famous and Needy's the only one sitting there being like this is ridiculous I was there I saw that's not what's going on these people are you know they're fakes and everybody's like looking at her like she's crazy and she's like you know greedy like they're they're taking advantage of a of a what do they call it they call it like trauma trauma porn or something i don't know anyway so to kind of go back to what you said there would be if you go back to how we explained diablo cody at the beginning of our conversation here about this and these two characters, Jennifer and Needy, being the same person or the same ver- parts of her. And we look at abusive relationships and the relationship between women in society. We have these two people that are really one where you're in this relationship and there's this one aspect of the person who is going along with things, who's conforming, who's being this Thing. And then you have this other part of you who is starting to question things, who knows what's there, but is being gaslit sometimes by herself. Self-gaslighting is going on. So it's not just, now we're layering things. Um, that self-gaslighting is going on if you look at the characters as one person. So they're trying to live in it, but they're also trying to escape the abuse at the exact same time. And that's why this movie is so interesting is because there are so many layers going on because when you start to really look at not just the feminist layer and the LGBTQ layer and when you bring in the Diablo Cody layer of these two people being the exact same person, it creates an other layer. It might look like on the surface level that one person's being mean to the other, but when they're the same person, you're getting the of being in an abusive situation and really trying to figure out how you're getting out and how to get both of your parts to eventually work with each other 
And then who is the authentic you? Who is the false you? Who is the you that needs to die off for the other one to become brand new and reborn again? When does healing begin? Are you a brand new person after it is over? I mean, there are so many things that are going on. And it's really, when I start talking about it now, it's pretty remarkable movie. It is a remarkable movie. This is what I'm saying. It's actually like really deep. And it like, it reminds me, like when you, when you talk about that piece, it reminds me of the, you know, the transformation that girls are expected to undergo when they hit adolescence, which of course is what the opening of the film is talking about. It says, hell is a teenage girl really hell is being a teenage girl like that transition from being a child with a sense of self that is authentic and genuine and you're just allowed to exist and be in the world and then all of a sudden it's like you're expected to become an object to be consumed by the male gaze um you know you're learning how to wear makeup and wear the right clothes and do your hair the right way um and it the societal pressure around transforming yourself into an object like really that's it's it's like a process of losing your sense of self so when the characters of needy and jennifer are kind of separated like that it's almost like the two senses of self that you know women could be said to have when they're going through that transition process from being a kid into being an adolescent um, and it's interesting that the film opens that way, too, with Jennifer on the bed with the, you know, the boy band posters in the background. And she's like, you know, got her legs exposed. And, and then there's like needy in the window, like staring at her. It's like it sets up this dynamic between the two of them. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit here in LGBTQ community theory. A big scene is when they kiss and there's all everything about the male gaze and how that scene isn't sexualized in the way you think it's sexualized And the lesbian gay community is like, this is just a great example of someone who didn't realize maybe that they were um, a lesbian the whole entire time and they've been in love with this person and it's them finally having this kind of moment. But when you look at it from this abuse perspective in the sense of here are two people that are the same people, and here's a moment maybe where they are slowly becoming one and starting to meet each other to understand what each other has going through, and they're talking to each other, both parts of them, because when you start to make an escape from abuse, a lot of different pieces have to be put together. It's not... uh, you just don't escape right away. A lot of things are, a lot of realizations, aha moments, revelations are going on. And, you know, some of those revelations here are sexuality. And we've heard stories before on on the show of, you know, when people have come to the realization of their sexuality, it also gives them an aha moment of what is going on here and, and control. So when it comes to that scene for you, and maybe I jumped ahead of myself. Like, how do you feel about everything that was kind of going on there and how the movie kind of plays out from there? Because that to me is like this big pivotal moment where 
I guess if you can say, is this the beginning of the end, which gets you to the end? Is this that kind of scene where they come together, but at the same time, they pull apart? That layer of their relationship is really interesting, and it's hinted at earlier on in the film, too, not just the kissing scene. Like, they hold hands at the bar when they're watching the boy band, and Needy is kind of, like, looking at Jennifer in slow motion longingly and Jennifer is like just focused on the boy band and like kind of in a trance because she's so overwhelmed with desire for this person that's singing on stage and so Needy like lets go of Jennifer's hand as in like uh she's not paying attention to me um so I feel like that desire for rethinking sexuality is like there throughout the entire film there's like a tension right um like Needy is in love with Jennifer basically and I think like that's part of to go back to like the film genre and the archetypes or stereotypes in the characters themselves. That's part of what the film is doing is challenging the black and white thinking that exists within these archetypes. It's like Jennifer is is pitted as, you know, undefined and unrestrained sexuality. Like she says it towards the end of the film, I go both ways in terms of like she kills boys, but she'll also eat needy if need be. And then needy is the the correct, the societal correct way of doing love. She's in a monogamous relationship they're, you know, they waited to have sex. They're using a condom. It's being done in the right way. But then Jennifer's reality is blurring into needy's relationship and that that happens explicitly and visually when jennifer is killing eating colin alive the emo kid and needy is sleeping with chip her boyfriend for the first time and needy and jennifer have this like uncanny connection where they can their worlds blur and needy can experience what jennifer is experiencing so she's experiencing jennifer murdering this kid while she's sleeping with her boyfriend so it's like the the unrestrained undefined you know female sexual desire is encroaching on the you know put in a box well-defined heterosexual monogamous couple and i think it's like it's overwhelming for needy but it's it ultimately becomes the thing that she has to go towards in order to free herself of the box that she's in so it w- which like maybe this is the right time to transition into talking about the final girl which is another archetype of horror films like the the no not a good time and well before you get into the final girl i because I, I wrote some things down that that i, I want to kind of first you said this relationship is done the right way and we kind of mentioned briefly early in air quotes yeah it, it, the right, <laughs> there's no right way that uh this relationship is what is expected of you maybe and that maybe needy is in this relationship but not taking care of her own needs at all and she's neglecting what she truly is and and truly is um her sexuality but also other aspects of her and then you have jennifer who's some ways not doing what she wants but there's a new version of her is doing 
what she wants. Not fully yet, but like there is this thing that she's impacted. And, you know, coming together and when it get back to like their whole relationship as a whole, being as one person, is it we're trying to get needy to love herself? You know, that this relationship, all of these relationships that are going on, you know, there's a part of her that there's no love going on inside of herself. And that can be a big thing, especially within her relationship. She's, she doesn't really love Chip. You know, she might like Chip, but it's what maybe Chip wants in the relationship and not really what she wants. And she's just going along. And that that's the power of Jennifer is that when, yeah, they are, there's so many as, different aspects to each one of them and they could be contradictions in their own way, but them coming together in a lot of ways is her, the beginning of her um, taking her power back. Jennifer's taking her power back, but it's also the beginning of her taking her power back of loving herself, accepting herself for who she is. Uh, as you know, and then eventually you'll see what happens as as things go forward. But you know, you were saying a lot of those things, and it started to kind of pop into my head because eventually she does become the final girl. So explain to us the final girl and horror and what that means and how this movie turns it on its head a little. Before I go into that, like what you just said made me think of something. Um, like the way that her and Chip relate throughout the relationship is kind of, yeah, like it's not ideal. Like it's not fully feeding needy. Like he's constantly making little comments and then he's not believing her when she comes to him about Jennifer. And then during the sex scene, which is like hilarious line, when the blood starts coming through the ceiling because Jennifer's reality is blurring with needies and she's like starting to scream and Chip is like, is it because I'm too big? (laughs) It's like, he's not even tuned in to the moment or to her and what she's going through. So it is, it's interesting that like neither her relationship with Jennifer is fully satisfactory, but nor is the one with Chip. So it's like, really, she needs to kind of reject all of it in order to like come to a fully sent like a full empowered sense of self maybe and she eventually because she's the final girl because she's the final girl so explain everything about the final so final girls in horror films are the ones that you know are pure so they they're not having sex they're not promiscuous. They're also like the careful ones that don't take risks and they're running away from the danger. So like the, the idea is just to survive whatever horrible monster is at the center of the narrative. But with needy, like just like Jennifer doesn't, you know, fit into the promiscuous one role in a horror film because she is promiscuous and doesn't die. Needy is also not fitting perfectly into the box of the final girl because she's not running away from the danger. She's actually running towards it and pursuing it. And this is like very literally visually represented when she runs in a prom dress towards the pool to save Chip from being eaten by Jennifer. Um, So... And maybe maybe it makes sense to back up and like look at the the visuals at the beginning of the film 
where, you know, you, you cut from this line, which is hell is a teenage girl. And then the, the camera pans down this window that has a, you know, meshed cage on it. And Needy is there like staring out the window and she's like locked in this institution because obviously it's the beginning of the film and spoiler alert, she, you know, killed Jennifer. So she's locked in this place because people think she's crazy. And there's all these like the iconography or mise-en-scene of, of the uh, room that she's locked in is kind of like calling on childhood. Like there's like teddy bears and the slippers she puts on are like these little they've got like little stuffed animals on them. So it's like she's a little kid. And then, you know, afterwards, like as you go through the film, it's almost like she's she's navigating this world that doesn't value women for what they are, doesn't value anybody not fitting into these perfect little boxes. And it's like she has to kill off all of these or or she has to survive. How do I say this? It's like she has to survive not being put in a box because everybody who's an archetype or a stereotype and put in a box dies. But Needy is the one who survives. She's the the final girl of the film, but it's, it's not necessarily a monster that she's surviving. It's this world that's building a reality that she no longer fits into. And within abuse, what you kind of just described, people being fit into a box, being, uh, becoming smaller and fitting into wherever they are, becoming voiceless, all these types of things. And when you eventually leave the situation, it's you getting out of the control of those situations. You're not conforming to the way you were before, and you're figuring out how to live and empower yourself and get yourself back. Or maybe for a lot of people to be someone who you might never have been in in the first place. So that all makes sense. Yeah. You know, even though she loves Jennifer and and she has love for this character, she has no choice but to kill her because if she doesn't kill her, then Needy won't survive. It's like the the final challenge for Needy is to kill Jennifer. And it again plays with the sexuality thing because they're on a bed and you know, Needy is on top of Jennifer, so it's like kind of connoting sexuality again. Um, and ultimately, you know, Needy stabs her and Jennifer makes reference to like, oh, my tit, like you've just stabbed my tit. And Needy says, no, it's your heart. And Diablo Cody said that that scene was supposed to be for the viewer because the viewer is seeing Megan Fox as this sexualized object, but she's trying to get the viewer to see her as a whole person of value. And that's why the mother comes in at the end because the mother picks her up. It's like for the first time we're kind of seeing Jennifer as this like valued human being. Like this is, this is not just an object to be consumed by a male gaze. It's an actual person. And that it's, it feels like the film is trying to say like, you know, needy had to do that in order to, step away from being boxed into that stereotype. It's like she loved Jennifer, but that stereotype isn't healthy. Like becoming that role in society, like 
you know, Megan Fox being shoved into a sexualized object in Transformers isn't healthy. And Diablo Cody having to transform into this person in order to work in Hollywood to tell her stories isn't healthy. These are toxic relationships that we're in with versions of ourselves that a controlling society is basically telling us we have to be. So it's only once Needy has killed Jennifer that we then get to the final scene where Needy is like in this room again in the institution and she starts talking about change and how you know, things have changed now, but change can be good. Um, and she's no longer the nice girl. She she uses curse words and she kicks orderlies and she sees things that aren't there. So she's like no longer in that stereotypical box that she was at the beginning and in the fir- in the room when you first see her with like the, the teddy bear slippers and whatever it is. It's like it's almost like this film is also a coming of age story where she's she's gone through this world that doesn't value her for her true sense of self and come out the other side with pieces of it that have almost transformed her into something else, which is represented through the fact that Jennifer bit her. And if you get bitten by a demon and survive, you might absorb some of its powers. So it's like all of a sudden the this like everything that Jennifer stood for is is also part of needy. So the nerdy girl with glasses and the overly sexualized hot girl that has no brain have been fused into one and they're no longer just stereotypical hollow versions of these stereotypes or archetypes that a genre film would use. They've been fused into one character and then she's able to bust out of that institution and seize the knife that the boy band used to kill Jennifer, which was thrown into the vortex in the waterfall and at the beginning of the film you know needy in her in her voiceover says that scientists can't figure out where this vortex comes out it's it's just leading into a different dimension i guess and so you know once she's been she's killed jennifer she's bitten by her she's absorbed some of her qualities and she's able to break out of this prison that she was in which is like metaphorically maybe the box that society is trying to stick people into she's able to see where the vortex leads and picks up the knife and then uh, goes and exacts the revenge because this is a revenge story on the boy band who started the whole problem in the first place and with hearing everything that you're saying specifically when needy is bitten by her and she is now whole she is now this person who is three-dimensional and you see i think the biggest word here is person you see her as a human being and when we're discussing abuse and abusers and society a lot of the time or all the time when it we talk about narcissistic abuse in our show or just abusers in general they stop seeing you as a human being and you're viewing these people throughout the whole entire film as these tropes. It's, it's how you're, they're being viewed, how the abuser is viewing you and her coming together as one at the end is to show I'm out of this. I'm not this thing that you're trying to make me be. I am this thing, this town that you have 
put me in, this prison that you put me in, I'm out of that dimension. I'm in reality now. That's the gaslighting world where everything is backwards and you're telling me uh, this is what I am and making me believe and sowing the seeds of doubts of who I am. And now I'm here as this full person and I have some of these parts of me from each side uh, to make me what I am. I know what I am. And now I can go fight back against what's happened and you're not going to be able to do it about anything about it because I'm outside of that world now. I see what that world is and I can go back into that world now if you want me to and I have power and your power can't do anything to me. I'm the one with this knife now. I know how this world works and I think that's kind of you know really what the movie was yeah she's the final girl she's the final girl um but 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 a different type of final girl um because in those movies you don't see the three-dimensionality of what is i think i think that's what makes this film super special in that like the film itself ate the horror genre like it went and just slashed up the confines, the box that is the horror genre, because it created a space for the female gaze. And it gave these female characters that are usually flat and one-dimensional agency and narrative control in a world where they're not allowed to have agency and narrative control. And, And like right from the beginning of the film, when it starts with black and white pictures of their yearbook and she said, you know, at the beginning of the year we were we were just pictures in our yearbook, nothing more, nothing less. Um and then the black and white flat pictures fade into the movie and it's like towards the end these these flat one-dimensional stereotypes is what she's, you know, busted out of and the the other dimension that is referenced at the beginning with this vortex is actually devil's kettle it's the town it's the movie genre it's the hollywood system that forces people to have to behave in certain ways it's society trying to force our sexuality into boxes trying to force us to follow gender roles and whatever else and so she's seen through it she's seen through the false reality and come out the other side. And that's why she's able to find the knife. She's able to finally leave. It's like a door opens and she's able to leave. And then the final, final shot of the film is just security footage of her eyes, which is a super interesting place to leave the film because it's just a close-up on her eyes. And so it's just like a blatant, like staring you in the face. This, This film is not conforming to the way that a typical horror genre would be, which is like the female body being an object to be consumed. This, this girl is just going to stare you right back in the face. It's like, it's the literal, the ending of the film, you're met with the literal female gaze right back at you. Like, it's just, it's so in your face and, and like, that's just, just not done. Um, I just think it's brilliant. Like the film is brilliant. Well, Emily, Charles, Donaldson, I really want to thank you for being here uh, with me today and doing this first episode with me. Uh, You know, this episode could not have been done without you. I think you really did 
a tremendous uh, job today breaking this down. I think everyone who is listening uh, could hear your passion while doing this. And for everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed uh, what we did today in breaking this down, breaking Jennifer's body down. It was a really interesting movie to do right off the bat. It was a difficult movie to do, but I think we did a really good job of breaking everything down in abuse in a way that maybe no one really has done before. I know I'm tooting our own horn here, but I really think we did a, a great job here to point everything out and to really cover uh, almost all the bases what was I even saying there, bases uh, that, that are bases that are, are possible in this movie. So a really big thank you, uh, Emily, once again, because I really do think you did a, a masterful uh, job today. Thanks, Brandon. So that is it, everyone. So thank you very much for listening. And from myself and Emily, we hope you have a good night. Mm-hmm.